I think a lot of what people like about these strongman dictators is that democracy is purposely, especially representative democracy, is slow and it involves disparate groups having to compromise or not compromise, which is even slower. And people get frustrated that there's no action when the system was kind of built to prevent action because action can be dangerous. And what they love about Trump is activity. They love that we know China's been unfair in trade or we know that there's been no progress in the Middle East or with Korea or immigration. It's true. I mean, we can't agree on what the solution is, so we don't get action, but people want action and they mistake activity for action. Like, well, no one ever did anything about North Korea. At least he's telling the guy he loves him. Guys, I am totally nerd crushing on Joel Stein right now, who writes for TV, magazines, newspapers, and books. I've been one of his cult followers reading this guy's humor pieces for decades, starting when we were both obviously toddlers. Joel was a Time Magazine columnist for 20 years until 2017. He's one of those writers for whom the term writer's block doesn't compute. Having also penned columns for Entertainment Weekly, Time Out New York, the LA Times, even his high school, and then at Stanford University. He's got this communicating with words thing, often and quickly, down pat. And not just on paper, but in person, as a cable news talking head and a late night funny man. In the past month alone, he's published an article for Town & Country Magazine on how to protect your reputation. He's written an article on impeachment for the Washington Post and a piece on the Democratic field for the New York Times. Prolific much? The book Joel is currently on tour for is Beyond Good. The other day, I force-read chapters of it to several Republican friends, and they hated to admit that they loved it and him. It was a rush, honestly, watching them nod their heads and accidentally blurt out things like, well, that's true, and he's got a good point there. In Defense of Elitism is the name of said miracle-working tome, and it makes one hell of a case for embracing reason and science and good old-fashioned book learning and being nerd-proud. Joel does it in a way that's funny and filled with ahas for people on both sides of the aisle. But that's the great thing about great writing, right? You can see yourself in all of the characters and storylines. Isn't that one of the reasons we write? To try and make sense of the nonsensical while hopefully having fun? You can tell Joel is having fun whether he's sitting with Conan or Bill Maher or me, pointing out things that are so oddly funny and obvious, but that you've somehow never put together before. Joel is on a mission to remind us that being an intellectual elite is not something to fear or find embarrassing, especially seeing as how it's the intellectuals that make so much of our cool technological shit. But he did tell me that he worries this book is not as funny as his first one. That one was called Man Made, and I had more gut laughs reading that book than I've probably ever had reading any book. Man Made was birthed as a reaction to finding out that his wife was pregnant with a boy. Joel panicked as he realized that he suddenly had to figure out how to be a man for his son when he did not know the first thing about being manly. So he goes on a hilarious quest. Before reading Man Made, I didn't know how heroic and enlightened and truly comforting a funny book could be. And I was pretty sure Joel didn't either, which is why I sent him the voice memo you're about to hear. It's not at all funny. Actually, I made the audio file minutes after the Saga's school shooting 
that was minutes from where I was at the time. But I think it underscores my deep admiration for this writer, the intensity of the times we live in, and the profound need we have for writers who can help us make sense of it all. Oh my God, Joel, I'm driving in my car right now and I am gut laughing, crying tears, listening to your book, your first book. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that because there's an active shooter right now in our town and everyone I've talked to has a daughter or a son or a granddaughter or a niece or a sibling at that school. And I was just driving with such a stomachache and shaking and scared and sirens going around all, you know, fire trucks and police are just driving every which way. And your book came up on my car phone as I'm driving home and suddenly I'm gut laughing because (laughs) your search for masculinity is so effing funny. And it's just, thank you. Thank you. It's very rare that a book makes me gut laugh over and over and over again. And I'm sure that I'm a little bit easier to make laugh right now because God do I need it. And I feel like everybody needs it. And I love this freaking book and I love you right now. And, but I think I would be gut laughing regardless because it's just damn funny. So that's my ramble for today. Goodbye. Have a good day. So Joel, you're writing in the past about things like body hair and bringing a porn star to Yale and trying, as you say, to make important people do stupid things. You know, you've been criticized from time to time by stuffed shirts as being self-indulgent or being lightweight. But as I felt and saw so significantly that morning when I texted you that voice memo was that we need funny writing. We need levity. We need humorists who can take the craziness that's happening right now in society and put it in such a way that we can laugh at it. We can laugh at ourselves. And I think it brings hope when we're feeling despair like I was. It was so awful to hear because that's literally how I found out about the shooting, which was so weird because yeah, no, I didn't know. And then I got that message from you and like 90% of my brain I'm being generous, my brain was in shock and despair over what happened. And 10% was uh, very excited that someone liked my book. <laughs> and that someone was you. And, and again, being generous with a 90-10 split. So it was a very weird way to hear about a tragedy. Yeah, no, I know. And I just couldn't help it. I wanted you to know the impact because you're in LA. And I knew that even if you hadn't heard of the shooting, it was a way to just honor your work and tell you how much it means to me. And I think what's so surreal about being a writer is that you never know. There's so many times we have no idea how our work is affecting people. Yeah, it's weird. You mentioned a column that I totally forgot I wrote, and it was nice that someone had remembered all these years later. What, in Entertainment Weekly? No, you mentioned the one where I brought a porn star to yell. I totally forgot about that. (laughs) Oh, this morning. It was (laughs) was a lot of effort. There was this group called Porn and Chicken at Yale that was watching porn and eating fried chicken once a week. And they wouldn't reveal their names. They wouldn't let any press write about them. So I called them. I said, will you let me write about you guys if I bring a porn star? And they said, yes. So then I just had to find a porn star and some fried chicken. And I I had a scoop. That's how you do it in journalism. I love it. Well, and I think that's why you have had for a long time a bit of a rock star following, myself being one of your fans, is that you always were doing weird things and putting yourself in funny, self-deprecating situations that 
we would never put ourselves in, <laughs> but that are wildly entertaining. I hope there's no more school shootings, obviously. Oh, and that would be horrible if there's another one. But if there is, I hope to find out about it in exactly the same way, where you text me and tell me how great I am. And also there's a school shooting. <laughs> and also, it really, yeah. it takes the sting out. I'll be honest with you. Oh God! But I was also surprised because I worked pretty hard to try and make this book funny because it's, we're at a moment in our political lives in most countries where you shouldn't have a humor writer, right? I should be writing about body hair and bringing porn stars to Yale. Exactly. I had a book contract where I was supposed to write something a lot like that. And yeah. I did it and it felt stupid. And it mm. just felt like if it was going to come out in 2019, it felt so irrelevant and as solipsistic and self-loving as I am, it felt even worse than normal. Like all those yeah. stuff shirts felt right. So and I wrote a book that's largely about politics, or at least the thinking that has got us into this political situation. So my fear, of course, then was that I really wanted to write a funny book because all the other books about these topics are so angry. Right. But it's not going to be as funny as my other stuff. We live in a time when humor columnists are writing about politics, and that's a bad time to live. But it is really funny. Oh, good. I took it with me. I was on a horse trip this weekend. Of course you were. <laughs> Whatever. I was sitting in the middle of a real dusty campfire and I had about mm, six people around me and three of us are Democrats and three of us are Republicans. And it was so much fun because I said to everybody, I was like, hey guys, sorry, but I have a deadline and I need to read this book again. So I want to read it out loud because I want to see how some of it lands for you guys. And I had the Republicans laughing just as hard as the Democrats. Oh, that's so nice to hear. Now, hold on, though. so much fun. It's California. It is California. It's a very elite trip, this horse trip, I know. So were these Republicans who didn't like Trump, or were they Republicans who did like Trump? You know, the Republicans who did not vote for Trump, but who like several results of his presidency, and we struggle with that as friends. <laughs> because, Do you think they'll uh, vote for him again? I mean, they didn't vote for him the first time. I I do think they will. And I don't think they actually, at least the first time, they didn't vote for him, but by not voting, they still were voting for him. You know what I mean? I know those people. So they were those people. And they're embarrassed by the lies and they're embarrassed by the sort of bodiness of Trump, but they are conservatives and they want more conservative judges and they love the tax benefits and blah, blah, blah. So we have issues. But I still love them. My father was a Republican. My mother was a diehard Democrat. And this is just my world. It's just always been my world to be in it's both It's not camps. many people's worlds anymore. It's become very tribal. There aren't many people whose parents... It is very you know, tribal. And I'm one of those that keeps talking because I'm like, you know what? If we don't talk, we're not going to learn from each other. And I do learn just as you did. I love how in, in defense of elitism, you learned things from these people in Trumpville. And I do too. I definitely learn things. But what I loved about that day reading to my Republican friends was how they were able to laugh and see things from a different perspective. Before we dive into that arena, though, I want to get to some writing questions first, if it's okay with you. I would Our love group that. is like but heavy I love writers. You sat people, I think you're the first person to force people to listen to my book who wasn't me. So I appreciate that a lot. <laughs> I've done the equivalent, but I think you're the only one. Yeah, I've done it too. And it's uh, they look very unhappy usually. 
<laughs> it's usually my wife, it. to be honest. Yeah. Okay, so let's get into that. Not everyone has appreciated your humor, and your writing tends to generate mixed reactions. Can you go back? Talk to me about Gore Vidal and what he said about your work on that plane. Did I tell you about that, or did I? No, uh, I read about it. I read about. I it. I wrote about that. Oh God. Okay. So what I remember is having written a pilot for Fox, living in New York City, a sitcom. And Fox, because the, the Writers Guild had to fly me first class. It was non-negotiable. I had to fly first class back to LA for meetings. And so I was flying first class and I was friends with this woman through a friend of mine in LA named Stacey Williams, who had been a Sports Illustrated swimsuit model. And apparently she was on this flight and she saw me. She was flying first class for some Sports Illustrated thing. And she said, we should sit next to each other. And I was like, this can't be my life. Like I'm flying to Fox for a pilot and there's a Sports Illustrated swimsuit model who wants to sit next to me. Like, this is all, this plane is going down for sure. Like, this is the end for me. So she asks the flight attendant if she can sit next to me. And he said, let me ask the person who's supposed to sit there. It's Vidal Gore. And I was like, oh, you must mean Gore Vidal. He's like, nope, the manifest says Vidal Gore. I was like, I doubt there's a Vidal Gore. So Gore Vidal comes in and he graciously agrees to sit with someone else who he enjoys talking to much more. And then as we're leaving the flight, I thank him. And I say, you know, actually, I know people who you're friends with and love you. This guy, John Dickerson, I work with. And he's like, oh, yeah, you work at Time Magazine. That place has been destroyed. He's like, Walter Isaacson took it over. And he's letting these young idiots write in first person about their stupid lives. And I was like, oh, my God. Gorvidal was talking about me. And literally, I am so solipsistic that all I could think was like, Gorvidal knows who I am. This is wonderful. Oh, God. That's how desperate for attention I am. No, I so get it. So you had earned that position at time. Earned is an interesting verb, but I'll go with it. Oh. (laughs) Well, and I want to talk about this because our listeners in great part are writers who want to get paid to write. Me too. That was the best moment. Right? Nothing has been as good as when I first got paid to write. Uh, It's just a dream, that first check. Well, for me, it wasn't a check. It was even better because I kind of didn't have enough confidence to do the freelance gigs that I probably could have gotten because people said that I could write things and I didn't have the confidence. I never got it done. I was fact-checking. But my first paid writing gig was a job, which was even better because it was health insurance and a desk and like all the adult stuff that, you know, I needed to survive. Now, are you talking about the internship at Newsweek or are you talking about the Martha Stewart? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I guess I'd been paid to write at two internships in college, which was right. pretty amazing. I'm and glad I know your life paper, better than you do. That's you do. Great. It's I just weird. Very proud of um, and my college paper paid us too. So I guess I'd, been, I'd gotten paid, but it was, something felt different about this being like a job where I was like, yeah. oh, this isn't a side gig. This is me actually. I might be able to survive from writing. And that felt amazing. Nothing's ever mm. felt that good. What did you do before you got paid to write? Did you always want to write and you were just biding your time or were you trying to do something else first? You know, I didn't think that was a plausible career. I guess in high school, I wrote for my school paper and loved it. And then in college, I eventually, for my last three years there, wrote for the school paper and wrote a humor column every week and loved it. But I guess I thought I'd have to go be a lawyer. (laughs) That seemed like what people who weren't good at math had to do. So that was my intention. And then maybe try and be a judge or in politics or something that didn't actually involve being a lawyer. But then there's a journalism professor at my college who 
read my stuff in the school paper. I'd never met her and called me and told me that there was this internship she wanted to put me up for and have me meet the guy in charge of these newspapers in Northern California. So I actually worked for the Paradise Post, which is that town that burned down. Uh, oh, no kidding. Wow. Yeah. And so that was my first internship. And I was there for a summer. And I got to write a lot, which I didn't expect, which was great. And then this same professor, Marion Lewinstein, who I still didn't know very well, got me an internship at Newsweek the following summer. I'm really grateful for her for finding me these jobs that gave me the confidence to at least try and be a writer when I graduated. That's so cool. Okay, so this falls in line exactly with what I think our listeners are concerned about. Maybe they've written in one area like you were writing for your college newspaper. So even if they've had success in one area of writing, say with a newspaper or a blog or even a book, you have had experience writing all over the place. We have listeners who are like, I want to write a screenplay or I want to write for TV or I want to write for a magazine. And you've, dude, you've done it all. So Martha Stewart, it's 91. Yep. You're interning at Newsweek. You send your resume to Martha Stewart Living. You're hired for a job you're super unqualified for because you're the Incredibly sole writer awesome. for yeah. her TV show. And yet mm-hmm. you cannot wrap a present. You can't keep a cactus alive. So what the That's heck? the least of my problems there. <laughs> yeah. If those are my only problems, I'd still have that job. So what's the behind the scenes story about how you can switch genres and have any kind of success? Well, that's a weird situation in which I'm straight out of college and just desperate for any job. And I sat at a bookstore in California and wrote like 30 cover letters and resumes and sent them to every magazine in the world. And the only reason I sent it to Martha Stewart was when I was interning at Newsweek there was this woman named Susan Weiland, who I never talked to, but was very, very attractive. And I remember she quit Newsweek in the middle of my internship. And I was like, where, where's Susan Weiland going? Yeah. And people said, she's the new editor of Martha Stewart Living. And I was like, what is a Martha Stewart Living? <laughs> and they said, Martha Stewart is a woman in Connecticut who does crafting and gardening and throws dinner parties. And I remember thinking, oh, right, so probably like 1820, like when did she probably started this magazine then? I couldn't imagine growing up with like a feminist mom in the 70s that there was a current woman who was like crafting and gardening in Connecticut. It just blew my mind. (laughs) And so I literally just sent an application there because I thought she was attractive, which is not the best reason to apply anywhere. And I got very few calls from my applications. And one of them was to be Malcolm Gladwell's assistant at the Washington Post because he was the New York bureau chief. But I got there and he told me I didn't want the job, which I don't know if it meant I wasn't qualified or he really thought the job sucked. And then <laughs> I got an interview at Cosmopolitan with the woman who wound up, Dana Cowan, who wound up being the editor of Food and Wine, who also told me I didn't want to be her assistant. Because they could see your talent. They're like, you don't want this. I don't know. Get out of here. I don't know. Yeah. I thought naively that I had so many great clips from my college paper and Newsweek and the Paradise Post that I would waltz into like a magazine job. Yeah. And that was not the case. I spent basically two years fact-checking. Then it was just nothing. And I would totally do that in a second. But when you're straight out of college and it's not going anywhere, you don't know it's going to be two years. So I was very tempted to give up. And I told myself I'd give myself two years and I'd go to law school. But at the end of two years, I was starting to talk about moving to LA and trying to write sitcom scripts for another year or two and then give up. Okay, so Martha, you were hired for the TV show. It didn't last very long. And then 
Because you can't keep a cactus alive or wrap a present. Or write for a television show. Yeah. You're working now on her magazine and she ignores everything that you write. And then she calls you the wrong name. She fires you for mangling recipes and putting gardening instructions in the wrong order. But you still defended her when she went to prison, which I thought was very loyal of you. Well, she was my first boss. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like doing your, uh, this is your life. Okay, yeah, so I'm clearly dead and this is my funeral, but I'm still yeah, cl- Clearly. And I promise we're going to get to your new book, which I'm obsessed with. But I'm also obsessed with Walter Isaacson who's written biographies of Leonardo da Vinci, Steve Jobs, Benjamin Franklin, Albert Einstein, and Henry Kissinger. So he's your editor at time. He walks- He hires me. He walks into your tiny office when you're there, and then he gives you a freaking column. It was crazy than that. What was that? I mean, a column. So I had been working at Time Out New York. That was the first time I was paid to write. I was loving it. It had just been launched. We were being paid $30,000 a year. But we were getting invited to all the coolest parties and I could write all I want and it would get published and it was just great. And then I got a call from someone at Time who assigned me a story for this magazine called Time Digital that they were running. And I wrote like four stories of my first freelance stories. And then this guy brought me into Time to meet Walter Isaacson and he hired me to my shock. And then I was so naive about how it was very hard for me in my youth up to maybe my, up to now probably, to figure out how big the world is. Like that's just always been a challenge for me. And I remember naively thinking that I, I was writing a column, much like my college column at Time Out in New York. And I was thinking, oh, all the people at Time are super old white dudes. <laughs> They're not going to read Time Out in New York. No one's going to see my column there. I won't get caught because I wasn't supposed to be freelancing. I was completely hired at Time, supposed to be writing for them. So I kept writing this column. Oh my and like, God. It turns out there's like, I don't know, 50 editors in New York. It's not that big a group. Right. And so, of course, they saw it. And eventually, Walter came to my office and he was like, I've been reading your column at Time Out. And, you know, he caught me and he said, at some point, why don't you do it for us instead and alternate with Calvin Trillin? Oh like, my God. Is- so here you're doing something, your side hustle. Yeah. You're thinking it could actually get you in a lot of trouble. And it yeah. ends up being the thing. So now twice in this conversation, you've been talking about putting things out in the world. First, initially, when you were young, you're putting things out and this journalism professor you barely know notices you and starts recommending you. Yeah. And once again, you're putting things out. So this is just the moral of that story to me is, if you're a writer, just get your work out there. You don't know who's going to find it. I was very bad at that when I was young. I was so afraid to like submit being a columnist at college. I avoided it for a year. I finally dropped it off outside their office when they weren't there so I didn't have to talk to anyone. I was very nervous about that. And then you build some confidence with some success. And yeah. I feel like I'm back in a place with a little less confidence now. Well, that's interesting because you're a white dude right now. Being a white dude right now would be hard. Oh, that's part of it. I'm also middle-aged and the business is changing. Yeah. And I'm doing projects that I'm a little less confident in. And I'm still confident about writing a magazine story, but everything yeah. else is, like you were talking about, writing in different formats. And besides the challenge of breaking into each one, it's just the challenge of becoming proficient in each one. No, oh, yeah. I've met people who are soap opera actors. Like, you should come in here and write because it would be so much better. I was like, no, it really wouldn't. I'd have to learn how to write a soap opera. It would take me a long time. Yeah, I'd have to learn how to write Hallmark cards. Every genre has its own challenges and legitimacy and uh, you have to learn each one. 
I say that to people all the time. People ask me, Linda, when are you going to write a novel? You know, I've done my whole life as nonfiction. I was a ghostwriter. I've done business yeah. books and self-help books and spiritual books. But it's usually nonfiction, how-to. I mean, I've been working on a memoir for years that feels like a novel, and that's why it's taking me so damn long, because I don't want it to be self-helpy. But it does, it takes so long to master a genre. I don't know that you ever master a genre, but you certainly try. Some people seem like they do, for sure. I know. With regard to how the business is changing, can you explain how it's changing and let us know what you would do differently now if you were starting over today? The magazine industry is kind of just dead. Not that there aren't people still making magazines, like you know, The New Yorker. Uh, that's the only one left, I'm pretty sure. But there just isn't as much magazine writing. And when right. you write it, fewer people read it. Obviously, I don't need to explain that. The book publishing industry is also you know, not as strong as it once was. Yeah, And there's more voices and more interesting voices entering book publishing right now. It's also, like everything else in our culture, things are getting more extreme. So I think you have some voices that are just playing to a certain part of, you know, a more white rural part of the country. And then there's some more diverse and young and interesting voices in the more cosmopolitan areas. And I'm a bit of a relic, I think. Like when I tried to write this memoir, which is what this book was supposed to be originally, I just found my stories of growing up middle class in suburbia, which probably would have been kind of interesting in an updike world of the 60s, really felt self-indulgent, but they also just felt boring. Yeah, no, um, I hear Which is you. worse. I don't mind being self-indulgent. I don't like being boring. <laughs> so I wound up scrapping that. There's probably a good lens to look through that. Sure. That I haven't figured out yet. But I didn't like any of the lenses that I had tried to apply, which was either self-deprecating or even looking at how privileged I was. None of it was that interesting. You mentioned not having confidence early on. Did you do anything else in particular to get your writerly confidence together? Did you submit on a dare? Did you repeat affirmations in the mirror? Did you seek out a mentor? In my book, I interviewed Scott Adams, the Dilbert creator, and he's super into affirmations. <laughs> I was kind That's of surprised right. that he, I didn't know that people did that who weren't Oprah, but apparently they do. I guess it worked for him. Yeah. So no, I've never repeated, I don't have the confidence to even repeat an affirmation. <laughs> that seems to require a lot just to sit in a room and talk about yourself in third person and how you're going to be awesome. <laughs> If I could do that, I wouldn't need to do that. If you could do that, you wouldn't need to do that. I think that's the no. best. Yeah. Best answer. I remember really wanting to be, after I graduated college, be a magazine writer. And I was working for Martha Stewart. And I somehow met an editor for the Sunday magazine the Washington Post put out. And I was like, hey, would you want me to write about working for Martha Stewart as my first job? And he's like, yes, write it. And if it's good, because we've never seen you write, we'll run it. And then I asked Martha Stewart if it would be okay. And she's like, yes, just run it by me first. And I was like, great. And then I just couldn't get the confidence. I was like, I'm going to write this and they're never going to run it. And I'm not going to be able to handle that rejection. I just started anxiety spinning to the future. <laughs> right, right. And I never wrote it. And there were two or three opportunities like that. What I would consider big opportunities that I punted on. Yeah. And that still, even though things worked out fine and I got a magazine job, they still haunt me. Like, why did I just not do it? I think that's so common. Many of my clients come to me, I do retreats in Carmel. So they'll come to the retreat and they'll say, 
So I'm working on this thing and I have this agent. They'll give me the name of the agent. It's somebody huge at ICM or William Morris Endeavor. And they told me to send it. And um, that was in 2016. And I haven't really done anything on it since. And I'm like, oh my God, you got far enough to show an agent or to talk to an agent about your project. And then as soon as you got the go ahead to send it, you froze. (laughs) And it happens all, I mean, I've done it. Yeah. So I don't know if that's Stephen Pressfield's resistance. I don't know if that's human nature. I don't know what that is. Procrastination, perfectionism, but I think it's very common. For me, it was that I didn't think I could handle the rejection. I could handle not trying and not succeeding, but trying and failing meant I would never succeed. And that seemed real rough. Yeah. I still get that. And what I try to remember is the stuff I've succeeded with I'd been rejected on a lot. Oh, I just won. This is, a, <laughs> this is not a big deal, but I don't win many awards. I could probably count them on my hand. But I got the LA Press Club Award for Humor the night before last. Oh, and, that's um, awesome. Well, it would be awesome if I'd been invited to the ceremony or if I knew it existed before I was told I won. But anyway, oh, you're I won some kind of trophy for a piece for the Hollywood Reporter that I had pitched to this editor asking me for stuff at the LA Times op-ed section where I was writing. And she just didn't think it was a good idea. Yeah. And then at the last minute, I was like, oh, maybe the Hollywood Reporter will take it. (laughs) And it was like one of the bigger pieces, probably the biggest piece I wrote last year. Yeah. So I try to remember, these are just people, just like the rest of us, when we have to make decisions, we're just taking guesses. And every time I hear The Sopranos got rejected by 28 networks, I think about, yeah, everything I've sold, got rejected by some people. It's so hard, but you have to keep pitching and you just have to write all the time until something succeeds. It's that Michael Jordan ad about how many shots he missed. You just have to take a lot of shots. Mm. If you're doing well, if you're Michael Jordan, those misses don't feel like a big deal. But if you're not playing much, every missed shot feels like the end. Oh, that's so true. How do you get your ideas? Are you a morning guy, a night writer? Do you have dry spells? I'm definitely a night writer. Yeah. I think morning writers and night writers are the same. They just aren't different circadian rhythms. Either way, you're a little out of it because you're tired and there's no one around and there's no emails coming. And it's just, there's fewer distractions, which is the whole problem with writing during the day. Although lots of people can do it. They just, Dave Eggers turns off his Wi-Fi and has a flip phone and locks himself in a room. And if you can do that, that's much better. Yeah, no, not easy. All of my ideas are out of desperation. I wrote this memoir, or series of funny essays. It was awful. I didn't want it to run. So in desperation, I sent my book editor like five ideas that I thought might make a book just in desperation, and she picked one of them. I think most of my ideas are like, there's a deadline coming. Yeah. You know, sometimes I will jot things down. I will jot things down regularly when I read something or I say something that I find amusing or someone else says something I find amusing, I want to steal it. Or you just read something interesting that leaves you with some questions. Yeah. Sometimes you read an article about a story and you're like, why didn't you follow that other guy in that story? What's that person's (laughs) deal? And it's great now that I have a smartphone because you can just type them in there because I don't carry around a notebook. So I just have a list. Oh, and you type them into your phone or do you voice memo them? I use that notes app Mm -hmm. and I either type or dictate depending on whether I'm driving slowly or quickly. Oh, good God. So how much did they edit you at time? 
Did your editors ever say, nah, go back and do this again? Oh, yeah, constantly. I should preface, I'm thinking about Mark Twain, who was never edited. One guy once gave him notes and there's a scathing retort where Mark writes notes back to that guy's notes, explaining why everything he had done was awesome and every suggestion the editor had made was lame. Like It was a total pissing contest on paper. You got to look it up. Tell me about it. He was, I'm a big Mark Twain fan. (laughs) Me too. I spoke at the Mark Twain house for my last book and got a tour at night of the house. No. Yeah, yeah. So it's empty. Apparently you can touch whatever you want, although I thought that was weird. And so I'm just (laughs) walking through his house and they're giving me this private tour and telling me all these stories about him. And he just seems like a guy you do not want as your dad. Oh, yeah, no. Yes, right? Like you forget. He's acerbic. Acerbic and megalomaniacal yeah. and narcissistic <laughs> and uh, forceful. It just yeah. seems... To his credit, he had a lot of tragedy in his life. Maybe that just wears you down. Yeah, and would like make himself bankrupt every so often because <laughs> he, like, he likes some invention. No, I generally embrace the editing process. I think of myself not as an artist, but as someone who's producing something that they want some collaboration on that someone else is nice enough to put out into the world for me and take care of all the parts that I'm not capable of. So I certainly have been edited and had things been made worse, no doubt. But I'd say most of the time it's been made better. And most of the time it's a process where you discuss it. My general rule is if I think they're wrong, I nicely argue. If they insist, and I really think they're wrong. So I'm down to like a quarter or 20% of the times that I argue one time, I argue a second time. And I'm really nice about it. And I tell them, I'm not going to argue a third time. Just want you to know my feelings. And I don't argue a third time. Yeah, that's good. And there was an editor who once said to me, look, I know that your job here is to push the boundaries, but if you could not write things that you know we're going to cut, don't cross the line. And I said, I really would prefer if you make those cuts because... I'll tell you, you've run things I would never have thought you would run. Oh, yeah. Like when you did the first person open about Chelsea Clinton at Stanford. You didn't think they'd let you lead with that, right? Yeah. Walter Eisen pretty clearly told me he hired me because of my voice. But then part of the reason I didn't really want to take that job at time at first was I thought I'd have to write in that boring old man time style. (laughs) And I was bummed about it. It didn't sound fun. And then they sent me to cover Chelsea Clinton going to Stanford. I was 3,000 miles away, and I wrote a first-person lead about my parents sending me off to Stanford and how embarrassing it was just for them to say goodbye to me like at the airport. So I couldn't imagine being Chelsea Clinton and having your president, dad, and your first lady mom show up at school and take all the attention away from you. And so I wrote that first-person piece and sent it. I had the regular piece ready to go. I was assuming they were going to require me. And I think there was some debate internally about whether to run that. And they ran it. And yeah, so then I kind of got a little more bold from there. Yeah. I want to talk about Stanford for a second, a very important school in my world. But in the context of how my experience relates to a central point of your book, my mom worked there for 22 years. Oh, right. She was a secretary. She started a book club that's still there. Are they not reading my book? You know, I don't know if they're reading your book. Yeah, we need to talk to them. I definitely have to check. But my mom didn't go to college. Her mother had died when she was a little girl. And she didn't know anything about scholarships. And she always had a lot of sadness about that. So here she was at Stanford. 
And I remember being a kid and going to several work-related events with my mom and listening to all of these Stanford PhDs talking. And I had this certain judgment for these guys. I can't say why. I can't say if it was because I was looking at my mother thinking she was such a brainiac, she really should have been them or she should have been teaching or she should have been a journalist like she always wanted to be. But I just was judgy. I just felt like these people weren't very well-rounded. I felt like they had arrogance just dripping off of them. And it really, really affected me. And I always loved school for this social aspect of the sports and the camaraderie and the friendship, all that. Outside of sports, I often didn't try. So I grew up feeling like an anti-elite, which is, as you told me, it's BS. I grew up in Los Altos, even though my parents were middle class. I had a beautiful upbringing. My father was a Bohemian member, like whatever. I was privileged. Oh, wait, the, the story takes a real turn right there. It doesn't really take a turn though, because he was the librarian for the orchestra. For the Bohemian Grove? For the Bohemian Grove. He was the librarian. So my father was a stockbroker by day. He did well, but he was not wealthy. But he had a freakish knowledge of music. His mother had put him to sleep every night in a crib to classical music. And so he could tell you every concerto, every conductor, he could listen to five notes of a piece of music and know who did it and where it was made. Do you have that skill or any of that? I am musical and I played the flute and the piano and stuff, but I do not have that. I have more of a freakish thing for books. I don't have a photographic memory like he did, but I do see and hear words in my mind like music. And I have like a psychic weird thing with books where I can kind of see books and feel books that are people are supposed to write. And I wake up with six dreams of books. I mean, it's just weird. So I do have an aspect of what my dad had. But at any rate, off on a tangent, I grew up feeling kind of like an anti-elite. I dropped out of USC at the end. I feel like your book is really, really interesting because you're talking about on the one side, you've got the elites who follow reason and science and book learning. And then you've got these populists who go with their gut. They want to have a beer with their leaders. Like, what the F? But everything is instinct. And the two are kind of at odds. You got to pick one a little bit. But what if you're both? What if you're like me? And I think there might be a lot of me's out there where I follow my gut like crazy in my job over book learning. I mean, I study my ass off, but I listen to my gut. And like you said earlier, I'm taking guesses that often turn out to be woo-woo right a lot of the time. And yet I was raised in Los Altos and I did go to USC. So what about people like me who are both? Yeah, I think we have no choice but to operate from our gut most of the time. But I also would argue that our instincts we know are often wrong. David Foster Wallace talks about the most basic fact that he knows (laughs) instinctually is that he is the absolute center of the universe and the most important person in the world. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So we know our gut's are not useful and we use data all the time and we listen to Freakonomics and we listen, you know, Malcolm Gladwell because we are delighted every time that our guts are proved wrong. And on a bigger scale, what I'm objecting to in the book is a president who says he knows more than the generals. Right. I'm objecting to people who go to their doctor after reading one WebMD article and are sure that they have cancer no matter what the doctor's (laughs) diagnosis is. Right. Which was my wife in the book with me. Yeah. My cancer. Those are the kind of things that make me really nervous about what's going on in most of the world right now. And that scared me enough to write this book. Well, and I'm so glad you did. In fact, that was one of the pieces at the campfire that was so interesting to these guys. 
because one of the Republicans there was in the airline business. And you reprint Trump's tweet where he's talking about, I don't have it in front of me, but he's talking about how in the olden days, before all these computers, flying was he safer. He was talking about the Boeing like, situation. Yes. And he's like, here's the real problem. They just don't let the pilots fly the basic machines like they used to. And there's too many computers in there. And that's right. what's causing problems. Right. And I was like, that's insane. Trump is old enough to know I'm old enough to know that when we used to land planes, there was a barf bag there clap. for a reason. And we <laughs> clap. If it didn't hurt, we clapped right, right. when they landed. And that's just not how it felt. There was a lot more accidents. Yeah. And computers have totally changed our safety in planes. Yeah, you said something in the book, it's like 90% safer since 1973 or something. Oh, yeah. I looked at all these charts. I forgot about that. And I looked at accidents over time. And there's so many more flights now. I was just looking at raw numbers of accidents, not percentages. And it's so much lower than it was when I was a kid. Yeah. And there's just a, you know, populists have a the world used to be better, which I get now that I'm right. older, but it's wrong. In every way is wrong. And not in every way, in, in most ways is wrong. And they also believe that they, look, I could fix the Middle East. I could sit those people down. These <laughs> elites don't know what they're doing. They caused the Iraq war. They were wrong about mortgage securities. So they're probably getting it wrong in the Middle East. And then you watch the impeachment hearings. And no matter how you feel about impeachment or Trump, I find it hard not to listen to these career people in the State Department and think, right. oh my God, thank God they're there. They know a lot. Don't replace them with people who know nothing. Like it just seems super, super dangerous to me. And then I always notice that people not a lot, the guy who hired me at time originally, who now runs Kissinger and Associates. And he was telling me a cool story, which was he was listening to a New York Times columnist talk about how to fix all kinds of problems. And he was like, yep, yep, that all sounds really smart. And then he got to the area that my friend has an expertise in, which was China. And he's like, he could not be more wrong about everything he's saying about China. Yeah. Right? And that's what it is. To think that you know more than the experts, to yell at your TV at the NFL coach about right. how wrong all his calls are, is really egotistical and dangerous. <laughs> it is. Well, what's so interesting about it, and I saw this again around that campfire the other night, is that what Trump said was absurd and it was radically incorrect, but there was a grain of truth in it. And the grain came from an ex-fighter pilot in the Air Force, who's a female, who said that what's really, really sad for her is the last time she flew in Iraq. The planes are so advanced now, they do so much, that if they were to lose their aeronautic system, if there was some kind of tragedy or fluky thing where they lost it, the pilots aren't as well trained anymore to fly at night by looking at the stars and at the horizon to recognize landmarks. They don't have as much skill as they used to. But this is like everything with technology, where GPSs are so good in our cars and on our phones now that we're not even paying attention on the roads as to where we're going. And so we're losing some of our spatial identity and orientation. We're losing some of our ability to self-navigate. So you always have that danger. So I think Trump, the only truthful thing he was saying there is that with technology, we're losing some of our independence, if that makes sense. I do not at all think that's what he was saying. I think he really was <laughs> okay, saying like... Okay. But the Republicans <laughs> that I know, they try to find truth in the crazy. 
And that's a really interesting, useful thing to think about is all the things we give up when we improve and all the dangers that come with psychologically, et cetera, with staring at our phones all the time, which is something when I went to Trump country, I went to the county with the highest percentage of Trump voters in the country in Texas yes. for a week. Miami. Miami, Texas. And they don't look at their phones all the time. There's a lot that we should be examining about the improvements in the world. And I think that the populace have some legitimate points, like all the globalization and knowledge economy and all the, what I would call progress of the Me Too movement and gay marriage and the trans community, that all has some kind of cost. As good as I think those things are, they have a cost, especially if you live in like white Christian rural America. And to not acknowledge that, I do agree is dangerous. There's a grain of truth in what the populists say and, and should be addressed. That we shouldn't just call them stupid. We shouldn't just say that they're voting against their own interests because they're not. They have a certain view of America, some of which is great, that is indeed disappearing. Like we don't have neighborhoods anymore. That sucks. They're not wrong about everything. But you just have to look at the counterfactual. Like, okay, is the option to go back to airplanes from the 80s? No, <laughs> that's a bad idea. Right. If that's your proposal, if your proposal is to close the borders, if your proposal is tariffs, if your proposal is 0% interest rates, those are bad solutions to real problems. What makes your book and your writing so funny is that you point out the obvious that people don't see. Like that part in Miami where you're spending the night at that place and you ask the woman who's about to leave, hey, oh, you forgot to give me a key. And she says, oh, well, we don't lock our doors around here. And she's just told you that everybody in town has guns, plural. And you're thinking, okay, huh, well, I'm thinking maybe some security would be good before we go straight to gun. <laughs> yeah, it's just well, absurd. I checked every night because I was staying alone in this quote-unquote B&B, <laughs> which was just really a rental house. No one else was going to stay there. So I'm all alone in this B&B, and every night I came back to the house, and I it's just a rural street, and I checked the address like five times before I walked in. Yeah. Because I was just going to open a door in this town, and if I got the wrong place, someone had a gun. And yet they're so neighborly. So oh, they were, bizarre. I had the best time. Nicest people, still talk to them, yeah. And I love the fact that they're happy with your book. Yeah. They love it. Or at least some of them have told you they love it. I felt really nervous when I sent a bunch of books down there. I like, bet. really nervous. Yeah. I read about Tucker Carlson. I spent time with Scott Brown, the guy who created Dilbert. Dilbert, yeah. Yeah, and then even uh, a guy, I'm friendly with the mayor of Los Angeles, and he let me be mayor of LA for a day. For the Which book. was my favorite part of the book. Oh, you're kidding. Well, I live here. And the fact that he's got 40,000 employees, including police, fire, water, and parks, and sports, and the zoo, and everything, and you're going to these meetings that are so incredibly complicated. And he understands so much. I love the way you explained how much he understands so much of what's going on, because he's been in politics a long time. And he's worked with all these different groups and he understands the language and the lingo. And the point you made, which I thought was so brilliant, was that we need expertise to run government. It's boring. This is not flashy stuff. This is really boring stuff. It's number crunching and it's about knowing these different communities and how to talk to them and what matters to them and what they need. And it's effing boring. And a guy like Eric Garcetti is willing and able to roll up his sleeves for 12 hours a day. You said he hardly ever pees. He never gets up for meetings because he's in it. He's in it with the people. And you compare that then to people going, oh, we should shorten the terms for senators to two years. And Trump is great because he's not a career politician. It's new, it's different, it's fresh. And you're like, 
No, it's not fresh. It's dangerous. I know. Just think of whatever organization you're involved in and think about grabbing someone who's successful in another industry and putting them in charge of your organization. And oh, yeah. Watching Eric Garcetti operate. And people want a solution to homelessness now. Right. And I sat in with him on meetings about homelessness and it's complicated. There's no just fix this problem that's been festering for decades tomorrow. Yeah. And people don't want to hear that. I think a lot of what people like about these strongman dictators is that democracy is purposely, especially representative democracy, is slow and it involves disparate groups having to compromise or not compromise, which is even slower. People get frustrated (laughs) that there's no action when the system was kind of built to prevent action because action can be dangerous. And what they love about Trump is activity. They love that we know China's been unfair in trade, or we know that there's been no progress in the Middle East or with Korea or immigration. It's true. I mean, we can't agree on what the solution is, so we don't get action, but people want action. And they mistake activity for action. Like, well, no one ever did anything about North Korea. At least he's telling the guy he loves them. And people like that sense of action, you know, doing something compared to actually solving a problem. I thought it was funny when Eric says to you, Trump is steering a truck without a commercial driver's license and we're all crammed into the trailer. And also he's not looking at the road because he's on his phone tweeting. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) (laughs) that's the kind of thing. Okay, I read that to the Republicans and they laughed. That is funny. It's funny because it makes sense. You kind of go, oh, that makes sense. I still like the guy, but that makes sense. Or that's why I like the guy, right? Right. Yeah. So interesting. It is interesting. I also love the part, and they did too, where we talked about, or you talk about, we. I'm your co-author now. I bet you didn't even know it. I'm fine with that. So you say populist leaders want to make people happy in the short term. So they lower interest rates to offer super cheap loans, pretending this won't later cause runaway inflation. In Venezuela, this has led to a shortage of everything, including toilet paper, causing people to have to wipe with leaves. This anti-economist attitude is popular in the White House, where Peter Navarro, the director of the Office of Trade and Manufacturing Policy, said about working for Trump, my function really as an economist is to try to provide the underlying analytics that confirm his intuition. And his intuition is always right in these matters. That's a really powerful statement. Yeah. It's like we live in Soviet Russia. It's weird. Yeah. It's frightening. Let's talk about your book opens. You're going to a Hillary congratulations party. She's going to win the election. I went to that same party. Mine was at my sister's house. I was so ready to celebrate our country's first female president. And it was the most historic day. My sister's house was filled with women only. Some of us were in all white. (laughs) There was the daughter of a Holocaust survivor who was at Auschwitz. There was a Muslim woman who was Iranian and just sure that if Trump won, she was going to end up in the camps. Yes. There was the daughter of a murder-suicide couple whose father had also tried to kill her. There was another Jew who'd also lost family in the camps. you live in a Lifetime movie? (laughs) Right? No, it was Eagle Rock. Okay. There was a rape survivor. And every single woman there had had really credible and serious Me Too moments in our past. So when he won, we were in absolute shock. All we could do was order pizza, ice cream, make a bunch of popcorn and cry. But we were so grateful to be together. It was the worst party we'd ever been to, but we were grateful to be together. And it just reminded me when I was reading your Hillary party where you're bringing Trump champagne as a joke, 
thinking that you're going to toast his loss. The sparkling wine that he makes in Virginia, yeah. Wow. Which is so, it's like his attempt to be a member of the elite was to buy this winery and call it Trump Winery and make a Blanc de Blanc. And so I, I got a bottle and brought it. I don't know what happened to that bottle. I thought we'd like toast his sad attempt to be a member of the elite as part of his downfall. And it didn't quite work out that way. Yeah, I was mm. freaked out that night. That I definitely thought out. that Muslims were going to be rounded up and that people were going to send back across the border. It's actually not been quite as bad as I feared, even though it's been bad. Well, it depends on what issue you're focusing on. I mean, I'm a greenie. Yeah. So from an ecological standpoint, it's been a disaster. I imagine that it must be a bit crazy making for you as a champion of the oppressed, but you don't want to Wait, join their ranks. Called, I have a book called In Defense of Elitism. I don't think I can claim <laughs> to be a champion of the oppressed. But you are. You are, Joel. This is why Walter Isaacson and so many other people are raving fans of yours, because you are. You are a champion of the under... Of, the, of myself, of, of, yeah. No. <laughs> no, you're a good man and you're doing good work. And you couch it under self-obsession and nobody really buys it. We don't buy oh, it. We, we know you're people, trying to make the world better. <laughs> okay, so some people buy it. But those of us who are smarter than that see the real deal, which is you're trying to make the world a better place. And you're doing it. You're doing a great job at it. Look, sometimes you have to bring porn stars to Yale. Sometimes you have to defend the elite. Whatever, whatever the times need. Okay, your marriage strategy. Is it still act cocky and hope she doesn't figure out how lucky you are that she sticks around? Did I say that at some point? <laughs> you did. God, that's my strategy for life. That's crazy. I wonder what you wrote that. So act cocky so she doesn't realize that's not crazy. That's basic uh, the game probably, right? Right. I mean, if you watch Pigeons, that's what they do, man. Those boys just strut around. They're like all puffed up and cocky. That's an amazing pigeon. You've definitely done that before. Like you worked pigeon into the conversation just to make that pigeon noise for sure. I have never, ever done that noise before. And I've never, I've never talked about pigeons. I've never heard an episode of this podcast where you didn't somehow bring up pigeons in order to do that. Oh, you're such a liar. You have never listened to my podcast. I have. And it's I've not never true. talked about I listened about to Nell Scoble. I've listened to a couple. I love Nell. Yeah. Amazing. I just met her. Oh, did you? Yeah, that's the fun thing of writing a book. You go to these events, you meet other authors you've always wanted to meet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's so, so cool. She's so cool, so funny. Ex-Letterman writer for anybody who has Oh, that's how I grew up on Letterman. She just, did you read that piece where she finally sat down with Letterman? Yes, she finally told him what yeah. his cockiness meant to her and how it affected her. And he had no idea. He's like, damn. What you realize is even the people who make the culture, yeah. they act a certain way because the culture is however it is. It is how it is. Even though he's helping to make the culture, it's only the people that change the culture who are all aware of the possibility that they're not acting appropriately. Yeah. You just don't know when you're living, when everyone around you is accepting it. It just seems, it's not just that it seems normal. It seems like it just felt like how things are. Just how they were. Guys have often been inappropriate with me. In fact, my (laughs) my grandma said to me one day, I was complaining about Cat calling. So, you know, guys on the roofs calling, hey, you got a great ass. And she said to me, honey, one day you're going to really miss that. She said, be sad when they're not doing it anymore. And here I'm 55 and, you know, I can clean up okay, but I definitely don't get cat called anymore. And I said to my fiance the other day, I said, you know, grandma was on to something. You can miss it. Now, I don't miss walking scared. I don't yeah. miss being glad that I had a Rottweiler with me when they were catcalling because guess what? That was scary. I've had a lot of scary things happen in my life. 
And it's legit dangerous to be a woman. You are way more vulnerable than a lot of men understand, including my six foot four fiance, who has had to learn by me telling him nine million times how much more vulnerable I feel than he does. But yeah, the other side of it is you go, damn, nobody notices my ass anymore, probably because it's a lot flatter. I feel like I'm luckily not around you because I feel pressure to compliment you on your ass right now. And I, I, yet I know that's inappropriate. So it's a awkward situation right now for me. You know what? It would be inappropriate, but I'd probably get over it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So one of the things that my Republican friends found really fascinating the other day at the horse trip, and I did too, which was this whole idea of the circulation of elites, that the revolutions don't occur when conditions are so horrible that the masses take to the streets. They occur when one group of elites sees an opportunity to take power from another group. So you were talking about feudalism, democracy, socialism. These are nothing more than different costumes for the elite. And you're talking about how Trump changed and suddenly now he's talking about being an elite. Can you elaborate? Yeah, so a little more than a year ago, Trump was in Minneapolis and he gave a speech after railing against the elite in the campaign, bringing them up constantly, he suddenly said, seemed out of nowhere, why are they called the elite? We're the elite. I have more money. I have nicer apartments. I have bigger boats. I'm the elite. I think he also said he had better words. But then I realized, oh, right. There's the elite that I'm talking about in my book, which I call the intellectual elite. And then there's his elite, which are people who care more about owning a yacht and our people care more about giving a TED talk. <laughs> and what I realized is I call them the boat elite in the book because I think there's really nothing worse than people that own boats. I really do. <laughs> well, you say because everybody the world over agrees that after a certain amount of time away from the shore, whatever you 13 do, miles? Yeah, you're 12 on miles? your own. Yeah, yeah we, if we can just get them 12 miles away from our country, they can do whatever they want. <laughs> That's how desperate we are to get rid of them. There are people that honestly buy the most expensive thing they'll ever buy in their life. And the first thing they do with it is smash it with a bottle of champagne. Oh God, that's hilarious. They're the worst people. (laughs) So there's people who care about showing off their power and their money. And then there are people who are interested in ideas. And then they really boil down to people who operate from the gut and people who operate from experience. What my friends at this camp also found illuminating was that We're not obsessed with food, the arts, and fashion. We're just surrounded by it. We live in cities where due to density and ambition, all the things the rest of the world will soon enjoy are created. I just thought that was so interesting. It's like, oh, that makes perfect sense. We're only obsessed with this stuff because it's everywhere in our eye line. Whereas if we're living on a farm somewhere, when I am out on the horse, I don't give two shits about what I'm wearing. But if I'm going to a restaurant in Soho, I do. Yeah, it's interesting. There was Senator Kennedy this week railed against people who eat, you know, he was talking about the impeachment trials and he was like, the Democrats are people who eat avocados, toast, and drink goat milk lattes. I think he meant oat milk, but he said goat milk. (laughs) We reserve our goats for yoga now. That's ridiculous for him to say that. Yeah. But I remember when Howard Dean ran, it was that amazing commercial. It was like, we don't need your Volvo driving, latte drinking, right? all that list. And then, but it wasn't many years after that. If you went to any republic, you'd have to pry their Starbucks lattes out of their cold, dead hands. There was literally a thanks a latte thing a couple of years ago in the Congress where the GOP brought veterans lattes in Congress. So yeah, these things that are markers of 
urbanism is what they are that people rally around are really coming to you as quickly as the you know next invention from Silicon Valley is going to come to you. So true. One of the other things that the people I was reading to were really surprised by, and they 100% nodded and were like, oh, that's so true. I was talking about how, or you're, t- see, again, I'm writing your book for you here. <laughs> I love how smart I am to have written this book. So the intellectual elite, you say, are losing to the boat elite despite the fact that we run Hollywood. Stories of cooperation and complexity have been replaced by raw expressions of good and evil, us versus them. And you're talking about everything is now superhero movies. Well, the Republicans I was talking to, that's what they watch. Oh, they watch Fox on TV. Yeah, that's what everyone watches, right? But not everyone, not me. I watch a few of them. For the most part, I want to watch something that's more nuanced. Yeah. Scorsese dealt with this in the New York Times. And he caught serious flack for that. I wrote a piece also in the New York Times a long time ago, New York Times Online, about how adults shouldn't be reading children's literature. (laughs) Harry Potter, etc. Right. I remember that piece. I was like, really? You're going to read stories about good and evil? That's the level of complexity you want to operate on? You don't want to learn about other people's lives that are somewhat more nuanced? So that does bum me out about the culture we live in today. Well, it makes everything black and white. It makes the us versus them, the evil versus good. It's simplistic. And the world, as you point out with the Eric Garcetti example, the world is not simplistic. It is all gray. There's nuance and subtlety. And that's what they call autocrats. You know, these strong men, they call them the great simplifiers. And that's what Trump is, right? That's what conspiracy theories are. That's what fake news is. It's like, I think there's like 10 bad people in the world, probably pedophiles probably like pizza too much. And they're out there in the world. So we got to call Ukraine and get rid of Joe Biden because he's one of them. And if we can just get rid of those eight self-dealing guys, we'll be in good shape. Right. And that's what QAnon believes. I mean, that's a really fun way of looking at the world because there's good and bad and you're the brilliant detective who can figure it out. And it really empowers you. And it releases endorphins in your brain. As soon as you figure it out, you get a shot of dopamine and you feel better. And Yeah, you've been red-pilled. or Yeah, it's amazing. I love how in that section about the dictators and the terrible simplifiers, you say the best line, democracy is government of the nerds, by the nerds, and for the nerds, and the boat elite do not respect nerds. (laughs) No, no one respects nerds. That's why no one wants to call themselves elites, because that's what it kind of means. People are happy to say they're rich, but they're not so happy to say they're elite. That's so funny. And then on that last point, you say... Boat elites take power with their fun memes and claim that instincts are more valuable than expertise acquired through our beloved rule of 10,000 hours of hard work. I wonder if anyone still wants to be a member of the intellectual elite. I'm so grateful that you're trying to bring back the positives for us. Yeah, no, we got to own it. Everyone listening to this podcast needs to own their elitism and stop denying it. I think that's the first step in getting our world back. Yeah, you say the majority of the world was wrong about allowing slavery. It was wrong about empowering Nazis. It was wrong about sending Japanese Americans to internment camps. It was wrong about every natural phenomenon being caused by Greek gods. (laughs) History has proven the majority wrong about music, films, hairstyles, and my first book, which did not sell well, which is such BS. Your first book. No, it's true. So good. Oh, thank you. Are you kidding? It didn't sell well? No, it didn't. No, it was kind of a disappointment. But um, It has over 100 reviews on Amazon. And it takes a good really? book to get over 100 reviews on Amazon. Most books don't get a lot of reviews on Amazon. 
my publisher. Runaway bestsellers will get a lot, but a hundred yeah. reviews on Amazon is really good. Is it? All right, you're making me feel better in so many ways. <laughs> so the least I could do was give you a compliment about your ass, but I couldn't get myself to do it. You need, yeah, you need yeah. to do that. My flat ass. Okay, <laughs> permissions. How did you get permission to write about these people? Oh, I've never thought about that word before. I just asked them. Did you give them final editorial? I mean, how did you print this stuff? Oh, God, no. No, it's the same rules of basic journalism. You're like, yeah. I'm writing this thing. This is the title. This is what I want to do. Can I interview you? And a lot of it was last second because a lot of it was the people in Miami who had to agree. And a lot of it was stuff I set up beforehand, like with Eric Garcetti or Tucker Carlson. So you never give anyone permission to look at things afterwards or you're screwed. I mean, you, you fact check facts with them. I think every time, I'm sorry, the exceptions are my mom, my wife, uh, usually my dad. So people who are very close to me, I will say, I'm, I'm going to run my quotes by you just because it's, it's bad journalism, but it's good family dynamics. But everyone else, I don't. <laughs> because it becomes an argument at that point. And then you yeah. get a not real version of something. So no, I don't ask anyone permission in that way afterwards. Well, the reason I ask when I wrote my first book, I was interviewing celebrities about how they had succeeded, but I was really trying to educate on the environment. So I was trying to interview celebrities who were on the front lines of climate action, because in those days, in 1998, really the press didn't give it much attention. And I just thought somebody has to and thought that I would save the world. Thank you very much. Well done. So I was, yeah. So I was interviewing Keely Shea Smith, who married Pierce Brosnan, and she was an environmental reporter that I had great respect for. And they went on to stop the last gray whale birthing spot they were going to build in San Ignacio Lagoon. They were going to build like this huge factory and ruin that birthing spot. And then they went on to help enact the Dolphin Safe Tuna Act in Congress. And so the two of them, to me, Pierce and Keeley were just environmental heroes and continue to be. They're still doing that work. I said to her, I want to offer you final editing approval because it wasn't for a magazine. It was my own thing. My thinking was, I don't want to get things wrong. I know from my own stories that I sometimes get my own facts wrong. So if I'm interviewing 17 people and they're giving me stories, but they're getting their facts wrong and we don't check it with them, they're not going to like the book. And then they're not going to want to help promote it, right? They won't go yeah. on the talk shows with me, yada, yada. They'll just hate the book. And so I let Keely read it and Keely gave it to Pierce and Pierce gave it to his manager. And I called over there, Pierce gets on the phone. He's like, Linda, oh my God, I love it. My wife-to-be is such a hero and you've just captured her perfectly and I'm so grateful for you. And he was so darling. And then his manager cut a bunch of stuff. And yeah. I was so yeah. bummed. However, they felt so guilty for the fact that the manager cut some stuff that they ended up giving me other great stuff. So what I found was, and this happened over and over, what I found was that people consistently got things wrong. Men, for the most part, did not change stuff. The odd manager here and there did. Men, for the most part, were like, whatever I told you is fine. It's great. I'm proud of myself. The women second-guessed way more than the men. But inevitably, they made it better and they got facts wrong that they fixed. And then they gave me better stuff when they pulled stuff because they felt bad. So to me, the only downside of doing it was it just took a lot more work. It took more time. But a bunch of them did TV with me. So it was more than worth it. It's funny. I haven't given this that much thought because everywhere I've ever written for, you're not allowed to do that. So I actually haven't delved that deeply into, although I've experienced it of the why, because people will claim they didn't say what they said and 
you get in fights and then, <laughs> you know. Well, and it's an issue for people who are writing memoirs, which a lot of our listeners are. And so memoirs tricky because if you're saying bad stuff about people and you don't have their permission, publishers can be wary. Agents can be yes. wary. But then again, oftentimes they let you run with it. So it just depends. It's case by case basis. You just have to have the facts. Yeah. I've been in positions where people screamed at me about stuff. I've written about them and you can hopefully have the tapes to play back to them. Oh yeah, no kidding. But then you think you've won and then they still fight with you. Because <laughs> that's just human nature. It is just human nature. When people are writing a book proposal, which by the way, thank you for sharing one of your book proposals oh, yeah, with me yeah, for yeah. my book proposal magic course. People loved it and it was so good. Oh really? Okay, it's oh, not yeah. the most professional. Yeah. No, it was so good. I loved it. So one of the things that people do is they go to get testimonials or celebrity blurbs or letters of rec. I remember when I was writing my first book proposal, I got a letter from Ariel Ford saying that she would be happy to do the PR for the book and she really loved the book, not knowing that my agent sent it to the publisher of Chicken Soup for the Soul, who Ariel had helped make famous. And it was her letter of rec that gave them the kind of confidence to sign me, an unknown writer. The other thing I did was I got a testimonial from Lisa Gibbons who said, if and when you get a publishing deal, I'd love to consider having you on my show, which all worked out. So people who are listening to this and they're writing their stuff, they're thinking about who can I get to vouch for me? So do you have any examples of where you have asked for a testimonial or a blurb, anything funny, anything crazy, any wisdom on this topic? I don't, I was coming into it from a little bit of it. I didn't write a book till later in my life when I'd already written for Time Magazine for over a decade. So right. I didn't have to quite prove that level of legitimacy, but I have yes. begged people for blurbs and th this book in particular. And it's hard. I've only asked people I know, but even then you're like, do I know these people on a personal level or a professional level? It's very confusing. And then if they didn't answer me, do I say ask them a second time? So people really came through for me on this one. I'd like, Jimmy Kimmel and Dave Jimmy Barry. Kimmel's, I'm going to read Jimmy Kimmel's. I can think of no one more suited to defend elitism than Stein, a funny man with hands as delicate as a baby full of soft boiled eggs. I've known him for a long time, but not that well. So that was like emailing him was a hard ask. But yeah, I think you have to just be bold and ask the most famous people you know, right. or sort of know. But if you don't, I think it's even, it's harder even knowing all these people to ask. I can't imagine. Most people don't come through for you. So it's hard, yeah. Well, and it's hard too because even the people that want to come through for you, sometimes they can't. I have had people ask me, really dear friends, ask me for a blurb and I'm on a deadline and I don't have time to read their book. And I don't like to give fake blurbs. I like I really wrestle with this. What do you do? I blurb them. I blurb. I skim. I look, I read a tiny bit and blurb. Oh, it's so hard. I will tell you that everyone who blurbed my book did not read it. And I know that because they felt bad. They're like, I don't have time to finish this. Can I just write this blurb? Or I read a little bit. But the bummer about that is then that waters down the legitimacy of the blurbs. And then publishers don't take them. Look, as my friend AJ Jacobs blurred my book. Yeah. There's not a book on a bookshelf that AJ hasn't blurred. Yeah, it totally waters it down. And he was like, yeah. you don't really want one for me. They become Walter Isaacson told me, he's like, you don't want one for me. They've become worthless. I just blurred <laughs> too much. I took it anyway. Well, and I've seen it both ways. I remember at my first BEA, which for listeners is Book Expo America, the largest book convention in North America. So I'm at my first one. It's 1999. My publisher has flown in Jack Canfield, Mark Victor Hansen, me, 
because the Chicken Soup for the Soul books were big that year and my book was a debut. And so we were all there. And Jack and I are walking through this massive convention hall with 70,000 titles all vying for everybody's attention and authors everywhere. And I start watching. It's like a rock concert. People are flying up to us. They're sweating. They're like manuscripts at the ready. They're giddy. They're nervous. They're like, Jack, Jack, can you blurb my book? And Jack, he doesn't blurb a book unless he reads it which maybe is why I try to do that. I try to be legit. Yeah. So he says to me, Linda, I can't do it. I have to read the book so it's honest. And then we are standing with somebody else. I'm not going to say his name. People are coming up to him at parties. Hey, can you blur my book? He just writes it on a napkin right there. Like, what's your book about? (laughs) Okay. And I'm like, what? I was so That's dangerous though, because I need to at least look at the book and make sure it's not a Nazi screed. Well, it was dangerous because listen to what happened. So his wife is sitting with me at a dinner party and he does one of those blurry blurbs. She gets up from the table. She's so angry. She storms out. I later talked to her. Turns out he had written a blurb for a sex book, not realizing it was a sex book. And there was something about it that was really, really offensive and it really pissed her off. And they (laughs) ended up having to deal with lawyers and it was this whole expensive like lawyer bill. And she was like, dude, when are you going to stop the madness? When are you going to be authentic? And so I think I was so scared by the whole thing. I was like, okay, I have to have a code. I have to actually read the book. (laughs) No, that's best. Maybe I will (laughs) reform my ways. Okay, I have two more questions for you. Please. So comedians often hang out with each other and spitball for each other. Do you have any spitballers? Do you have a secret Cyrano? Somebody funnier than you behind the curtain? Yeah, I like to run ideas by people. When I was writing a column regularly, I used to write three to 10 leads, like one to two paragraph beginnings. And I would email them to friends so they could focus group them because I don't trust myself. (laughs) Who do I spitball with? Right now I'm writing a pilot and I've got this actor, Max Greenfield, as my producer. And so we're meeting and go over ideas and it's so much more pleasant than sitting alone. Oh, yeah. But I don't normally have a partner like that. I email my friend Josh Tierengel, who used to be the editor of Business Week and used to work with me at Time. Just a bunch of friends. I just don't want to bother anyone too often. So whoever I happen to be talking to a lot right then, I tend to call them. Sometimes if if I'm writing for a specific editor or a specific network and I know someone's worked with them before, I'll call them. But usually it's just literally whoever I've been chatting with lately, I call back and I'm like, hey... Or email usually. Mm-hmm. While I have you, it just seems less intrusive somehow. <laughs> I have a girlfriend in Hollywood. She's a successful screenwriter and she has a really big gig right now writing for a series on Showtime that she got because she was originally hired just for a day rate to come in and brainstorm. There were like 10 comedians they called in on the show. And all 10 of them sat there all day long and got paid their day rate just to spitball ideas. And hers were so good that they ended up bringing her on as a staff writer. Yeah, I've heard about people doing that. I almost, I almost, I went in for an interview for that show, I'm Sorry. Oh, yeah. That exact same thing, just spitball ideas. And then I think she hired a couple of those people to be the writer for the following season. I tried to steal some TV ideas for this book. Like... One thing you do when you write a pilot is you bring in a bunch of friends who spitball better jokes. So I took sections of this book and gave it to sitcom writer friends and asked them to beat the jokes. 
<laughs> it didn't really work. Their jokes weren't good. And what I needed to do was either get, because I heard Mindy Kaling did this. Oh, yeah? I, I think you need to get them in a physical room and get them to beat jokes. And that's a big ask. And I guess I wish I did that, although that would have required a lot of organizing. And I don't think I could have got that together. But I wish I did what David Sedaris does. And I tried it for my first book for one chapter, which is he writes the chapters, he reads them long before they're going to run and just sees what people laugh at and what people are bored at like a play. Oh, yeah. You just test it out in front of an audience. I didn't do that. Yeah, that's one of the main benefits of a writing retreat is to see how your work lands, where people laugh, where they're bored. I have completely rewritten chapters and entire speeches based on the deafening silence of the room. I wish I had been able to get it together to do that or amass an audience to do that. But I did read the audiobook in both cases. And that sucks because you read the audiobook after the book is going to the printer. Yeah. So A, you see typos because when you read out loud, it's just different. And B, you just hear sentences that suck and you just want to fix them and you can't. So I wish I had just read it out loud. I don't know. I guess I wish I'd found some way to read the whole book out loud. I think that would have helped. That's one of the first things I tell new writers, so it never would have occurred to me to tell you, is that you have to read your book out loud. And it's exhausting to read a book out loud. It takes 10 hours. But if you don't do it at different stages of the editing process, you will kick yourself later. And you will always find lines, even after you've read it out loud two or three times, you're always going to find lines that you hate or that you go, what the hell did I say that for? That's not even true. Or that doesn't even make any damn sense. But if you don't read it out loud, you won't catch them. I was changing things so up until the last minute, which is why some of these typos occur, (laughs) that I wonder where I could have fit that in. Because it is, it's a huge time commitment. It's huge. And by the way, after your audiobook, you can't even talk at night. Like it's just so, it's so, you can't. I was just drinking green tea. It's like, you know that wedding voice you get after? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Every night, I just was quiet at home because your voice hurts. Oh, yeah. So I don't know how you do that. I interviewed a guy for my beautiful writers group. It's a membership group I have for writers. And he came on as an expert interview for audiobooks. He's recorded over a thousand audiobooks. And he was talking about how grueling it is. And I just thought, I could maybe get through five in my life. <laughs> and that's it. I kind of got into it. The first time I didn't enjoy it. The second time I started to get better at it and kind of enjoy it. Yeah. Because you kind of wind up doing voices, like not full on impressions. Because I listen to a lot of audiobooks and I realize that they do slightly. It's a performance. And I'm not a performer. I'm not good, but I did enjoy it. But it really is a performance. And that's what you see as you start listening to them. It's like, oh, you don't just read it like you would at home by yourself. You have to actually put some energy behind these characters. Yeah, and like how to deliver a written joke. I'm not an actor. All of that was new and kind of fun. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) I remember the first time I recorded an audiobook was my last day there and Mary Lou Henner came in. Mm. And she had been in my second pilot. So I knew her pretty, and she's like the only actor I stayed in touch with. And so she came in to finish her audiobook and she gave me like 10 tips on how to record an audiobook (laughs) on my last day. Really? Yeah, it was very frustrating because I was like, I wish I had known all this. But so this time I went to an actor friend of mine and he gave me lots of tips on how to read, which was helpful. 
What were a few that stand out? It was all really specific stuff, like how to read a list of things without it sounding monotonous when your voice goes <laughs> up and down. All kinds of little tips that I found useful. How to end a sentence without your voice sounding the same every time. And it was good. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, last question. Parenthood. How... Don't you... do it. Stay away. Yeah. <laughs> They'll break your heart. It does break your heart over and over and over. And yet, we just keep doing it. That biological thing. It's not even a biological thing anymore because the amount of time we spent talking about whether I have kids, definitely, it was not biological. Oh, maybe it was. You're right. It's hormonal. I remember reaching an age where I... I did not want kids my whole life. And I just remember thinking, everything's getting a little more boring. I used to really like going to rock concerts. Really like it. The thrill is gone. And I was yeah. like, oh, that's going to happen with everything. That's oh, going to happen yeah. with restaurants, travel, and sex, and television. Mm. And like, I better find something new. And my friend Rufus Griscom said to me, at the great buffet of life, having kids is one of the major tables. You're going to skip one of the major tables? I was like, I can't skip one of the major tables. That goes against everything I believe in. Any advice for balancing relationship, family, writing? Yeah, I do not do this, but it's clearly a huge mistake to write in your house. <laughs> it's just stupid. If you have kids, if you have anyone, if you have a refrigerator, it's just a bad idea to write in your house. <laughs> and I don't abide by that. I built a home office, which now I feel committed to. Yeah. Although my wife's kind of turned it into a pottery area, so maybe it's not mine anymore. Oh, that's helpful. Yeah. I think just getting dressed and showering even and going somewhere else is probably a big help. This is so sad that I have to go catch a flight. You're amazing. Thank you. Look, there's nothing I enjoy more than talking about myself. <laughs> I'm going to keep doing it even after you hang up, so it doesn't matter whether you record or not. <laughs> You're the best. All right, sweetie. Thanks a million. Thank you so much. This is so fun. Take care, Joel. Okay. Okay, bye. bye. This book is a call to arms for the elite. Not actual arms, since we don't think people should have those, but metaphoric arms, which are the type of arms that will be useless against the populist arms, which are real arms. Which is why I'm not standing up to the populace in person, but here in print, where none of them will know about it. Thanks so much for listening. What a blast. I can't wait to hear what you think about man-made and in defense of elitism. Ping me on social media and let's keep this conversation going. You can find all things Joel Stein at thejoelstein.com. I want to thank Los Angeles Commissioner Scott Crawford for introducing me to Joel in the first place and to Kevin Baker of Red Room Sound, who always goes above and beyond. If you loved what you heard today, I would be so grateful for your five stars on iTunes or wherever you listen to us. And if you'd like to join me at an upcoming writing retreat in January in Carmel-by-the-Sea, where I might even share some of one of Joel's masterful book proposals that he shared with me and for us, head over to bookmama.com slash retreats. Until then, I'm sending you so, so much love. Nerd out, you guys. Right on. Unless you think Republicans and Democrats can't get along, here's a little pigeon talk between me and my guy. <laughs> Give me a pigeon. Do it. That's a lamb. Stop it. Oh, stop it. Give me a pigeon. <laughs>
<laughs> I got no vision. Okay, vision. Ha, 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 ha.